Hey, you're listening to the Pearls of Wisdom podcast on Cold D Collective, where we share stories for, by, and about Asian millennials. My name's Natasha Jung, and I'm your host. In today's episode, we sit down with Olivia Chang, an actor and multidisciplinary creative. She currently stars in Warrior, premiering on October 2nd on Cinemax. We talk with Olivia about the timeliness of the second season premiere of Bruce Lee's writings and how the themes of this show, including racism, take place today in 2020. You can also check out this story and more for By and About Asian Millennials on our website at coldtcollective.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, newsletter, and follow us on social media at Cold Tea Collective for more Pearls of Wisdom. Hello and welcome to the Pearls of Wisdom podcast on Cold Tea Collective. We have a very special guest today. And in this episode, we welcome Olivia Cheng. Now, she's got a long-spanning list of film and television credits, but personally, I was first introduced to her in the show Marco Polo. And more recently, she starred in Deadly Class and now in the upcoming second season of Warrior as Atoy, premiering on October 2nd on Cinemax. Welcome, Olivia. Uh, We were just talking before this about how this has been years in the making. Yes, yes. (laughs) I I still remember you coming up to me at the Ali Wong show in Vancouver. Yeah, true story, true story. I I can't remember you gave me a card at the time, but... um, I possibly could have, because I'm a bit of a weirdo like that. Um, Great, it was was great. You you don't have creep vibes, so... Oh, good. Yeah. You know what is creep vibe? What is creep vibe? Okay, like, especially if if you're a dude, like, just dudes, just... I I, I love when fans come up, just please don't, like, put your arm around me or, like, touch my back, like, you're also trying to hit on me at the same time. That's what is creep vibe. Yeah. Okay. So that's going to be pro tip number one. You want (laughs) to say hi to Olivia or just any like woman in general. It's a woman in general thing. It's just a woman in general thing. Just just ease. Yeah. Just respect the physical space. Yeah. At at least in the first 10 minutes, even just 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if there, if that, that space were to close, maybe don't be the one to initiate that. Although I feel like with COVID, you know, people are a little bit more respectful hopefully these days when it comes to personal space this is this is true we are we are talking about pre-covid pre-covid times yeah that's right that's right so pre-covid times i fangirled a little bit it was just before the ali wong show in vancouver and i was just like it was her it was part of her second um second tour i was like oh excuse me are you olivia chang from marco polo like bright eyed (laughs) but i remember we got into a really great conversation about you know, Asian Canadian representation in film, television, theater, and all the above. Yeah, your passion comes through, which is why I remembered you from oh, good. that meeting. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I remember watching you build Cold Tea Collective. And, you know, and, and I think we've just been looking for the right time to yeah. talk, you know. Not yeah, just- we really have. And we've even seen each other, like, you know, socially as well. We've you know, when friends come into town from LA and stuff to you. So really happy to talk to you about Warrior. Um, huge fan of the show. Season two is about to premiere. My gosh. Okay, so for people that haven't seen Warrior yet, how would you describe the show? Mm. Well, Warrior is a Bruce Lee legacy project, first and foremost. Shannon Lee, his daughter, is one of our executive producers. It's also co-executive produced by Justin Lin, who has done so much for Asian Americans on screen, director of Fast and Furious, um, and Jonathan Tropper, who was a co-creator of Banshee. And it is a show that it is far from your traditional 
period piece. We break a lot of rules. We are set in 1878 San Francisco Chinatown, four years before the Chinese Exclusion Act kicks in, which to this day I believe is the only piece of American legislation that really specifically targeted an ethnic group. They have all kinds of systemic racism, of course, we are, so many of us are, are learning more and more about now. But this was a period that really defined the Asian narrative that I think still resonates today, unfortunately. So our, our show is incredibly topical. It's incredibly timely in a way that I wish it wasn't. And you have these fantastic characters who are trying to survive. And there's honestly something for everyone. Absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. Like, wonderful way to introduce the show to maybe folks that haven't seen it yet, but also just a really great way to kind of tie that into what's happening in the world today, Uh, especially, you know, a lot of anti-Asian sentiment, a lot of racist incidents, you know, like all over, honestly, um, when it comes to people, you know, blaming the Chinese or, you know, not even being able to tell who's Chinese or who's not. I mean, that's beside the point, right? Like for COVID, right? And just, you know, it, it, like so many things and you know I, I gotta say like last like the first season was was challenging to watch because it's like oh my gosh like this is probably so close to what you know a lot of people had to endure at that time in 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 the 1800s and then you know even now just being more timely and more connected to current events it makes it just that much more real and that's something it's, it's a bit of a challenge to kind of get through in that sense like I guess for you, when you were filming that, uh, you know, obviously this COVID stuff didn't happen yet, but thinking back on it now and having the show be released, um, the second season released soon, how do you think people are going to react to that? I recognize that our content could be triggering in a way that maybe it wouldn't have been in season one because it felt so far removed from our time. But... I really hope what Asians can get out of this is for them to see heroes on screen who look like them and who are taking on the system of white supremacy with the spirit that Bruce Lee embodied. You know, Bruce Lee's mere presence on screen was a protest in and of itself. And so much of that pioneer, innovative spirit of pride, cultural pride and defiance is just imbued into this show and represented so beautifully by our central Asian characters who have always been positioned as the most important characters of the show. And that's something that I don't think exists on air right now. So in a way, I think this show could be very, very therapeutic. And to quote, you know, culture critic, Jeff Yang, he, in Vanity Fair recently, said that this show deserves to be part of this moment and, in fact, could be the vaccination for the, the second pandemic around race and COVID-19 and, and, and anti-Chinese sentiment. Wow. It sounds like I've got to do some follow-up on reading on, on what Jeff, Jeff Yang just wrote on. I think it'll really bring to light, you know, this is you no, know, you see things on media, but I think with media too, like anytime, like on your social feeds or like the television channels or um, the news sources you you try to you know keep up with, it's a very curated experience. And so, I mean, it's certainly so are the like the the TV shows that you watch, of course. But it hits so hard in, in this season, and yeah, hopefully, it makes people realize that hey, like 
you know, if you saw this happening in the show, it made you feel bad. Like, would you do anything differently if you saw it happening in real life? Uh, we, we just got really dark right here. Um, but I think, I think it really is important to, to talk about. And so, but maybe just, you know, taking a step back a little bit, let's talk a little bit more about your character and the significance of your character in the show without giving away any spoilers for the next season. Sure, yeah, I, I play Atoy. She was a real life notorious figure in San Francisco history. I believe her heyday was more in the 1850s. So in our fictionalized version of Atoy, we just kind of supplant her into a different era. You know, in the real Atoy, it's really interesting to me that there is no recorded that I know of story that is told from her own point of view with her own words. So I've only really seen male historians write about her and she's like got this like urban legend fabled uh, legacy in these like little pockets of the internet. But she was arguably the first Asian immigrant to use the US uh, legal system to protect her business and her assets. This woman was boss. Like, oh, imagine 100%. Right? Like imagine coming to a country and there are two different versions that she was a slave and her owner died on the ship on the way to America. And so she kind of arrived a free woman or that it was her husband who died. But either way, it seems she had to make her way on her own in America, was very business minded and, and went from performing in these peep shows, you know, and had men lined up around the block and then realized it was so popular that she sort of franchised it out. That's one story. So mm. I play a fictionalized version of her. Yeah, I don't want to give anything away. Um, there's more to our Atoy. There's more to her than meets the eye in, in yeah. her version. And I really specifically want to say that too to women who might be watching. And I know that there's a lot of um, historical pain around how hypersexualized we are as, 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 a, as females in this community um, by Hollywood. Just stick with us. Stick with this character and like, you know, we'll flip it on its head for you. Absolutely. I think um, that really becomes clear, especially in the second season. I, what I love is that every single character goes through a journey, you know, between, you know, within the seasons as well as like throughout season two. And um, with Atoy's character, you actually get to learn a little bit more about why she is the way that she is, learn more about her history, and learn about, you know, like what kind of, you know, what she's had to either sacrifice or where she feels stuck and maybe even helpless, even though she's a very strong, you know, character, like in general, not even just a female character. And so that's what I'm, you know, really excited for, for people to see. We have a couple of questions uh, from some fans of the show that came in through Instagram. And so some people want to know, uh, what do you have in common with Atoy? And oh. if, yeah, we'll start there. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Um, I, I, I've said before that I think the keys to playing her as a character are her pride and defiance. I think those are the two building blocks of her spine. And I, I think that's something I really relate to because I have a lot of pride in my culture and I have such a defiant streak, you know? So that's what I, 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 I think I can pull from. And I, I think that holistic view she has where as you get to know her, you realize it's really not just about her. She really is someone who thinks about her people and recognizes that she is one of the only ones in Chinatown who is thriving to the point that she has a luxury to 
think about the future of the community. And I think that that's something I, especially during this pandemic, have really come to realize that I definitely really care about my community. And, you know, I've spoken on behalf of the community before, and I really feel like it's important to do so now. Um, what are somebody, you know, kind of departing from talking about Atoy's character and, and talking about, you know, following up on what you're doing to, to lend a voice and, you know, lend your platform to the community? What are some messages that you're hoping to, you know, share with other gener- the general public or to empower your community right now? And who would you include in that community even? That's a really interesting way to put who would you include in your community even? Um, you know, if you identify as Asian, that is my immediate community. You know, uh, whether that's East Asian, Southeast Asian, South Asian, you know, because I, I, I know South Asians went through something very different post 9-11. Um, mm-hmm. And actually a lot of my South Asian friends have had a lot of compassion and understanding and they saw it coming in some cases before I think some of us fully realized what was about to hit because mm-hmm. of their experience post 9-11 and suddenly being branded a terrorist for no other reason than they looked a certain way. So I I see that as my community. And I think right now what I'm trying to do, it's, it's new and I'm shy in a way about talking about it because I don't think I'm super good at it yet, but I am also really learning and striving to be an ally for the black, brown, indigenous community. I mean, look, I'm basically a sole champion for the invisibilized. And wherever I see that, you know, wherever I see something that just doesn't seem right, it bothers me. And Mm -hmm. I think right now, the racial reckoning that's happening in our world right now, I can't be quiet. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's really even propelled like our writers and content creators with Colty Collective uh, to really stop and think about as well. I mean, even for myself, you know, of course, like, you know, you know, racism is bad, but I didn't realize like, maybe I needed to be more vocal about that and be more vocal about my, you know, support for folks outside of perhaps the immediate Asian community. And, you know, just learning, as you said, how to be a better ally, I think is really important. Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting thing because something I noticed personally too is that, you know, when COVID hit and there was all this anti-Asian sentiments um, popping about, no one really talked about allyship for the Asian community. You know, everyone was just kind of more focused on themselves and their health when on the unfortunate incidents of, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and, you know, of course, like countless others, oh, even larger uprising. That's where the, where the conversation of allyship really, really hit mainstream. So for me, like, I think it's been really interesting to see that and kind of figure out my, not only my role as an individual, but also, you know, Cool D Collective's role in that. And it's really great to see, you know, I, I think you've um, been promoting some, you know, Black authors, other creatives on your platform. And I think that's really wonderful that you're doing that because, I, you know, the more people that know about you know, these amazing people to follow, the more resources, the more information that they'll have access to. In terms of kind of, you know, where that need to, you know, speak up comes from, like, where do you think that comes from? Is it from your like upbringing or from, you know, other personal experiences? I think, I think a big part of it was my influence from my dad, just by osmosis. You know, my dad is quiet and conservative man, but he can be a real powerhouse when it comes to organizing. So I grew up in Mm -hmm. Edmonton, Alberta, and I came up 
from kindergarten through grade 10 in the Mandarin bilingual program, which my dad and my mom cold called any Asian name they could find in the Edmonton phone book and found a group of parents and found their first teacher to create the Mandarin bilingual program, which last I heard was the second largest language immersion program in the Edmonton public school system. So, you know, my dad's a community builder and it's not like we sit around talking politics and talking about that stuff, but I think it influenced me some way, not only in knowing that my dad saw a need for something and took it into his own hands, but also because he created a program where I learned to be proud of being Chinese and I learned the beauty of my culture. And, you know, I think that's where I relate to Bruce Lee as a, as a, as a philosopher and an ambassador for our culture. It was his life mission to show the beauty of his culture. And I, I think that's where it came from. I think it also came from my experience as a broadcast journalist and my experience growing up in Edmonton and enduring incidents of racism, you know, I, I think all that comes together to, one, understand what it feels like, but then two, also have an experience of what it is to have a platform to say something. And when you know that nobody else is in that position to say it, you kind of feel that responsibility to say it for everybody who can't. And I'm not saying I get it right all the time. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Yeah, I, I wanted to say something to what you were saying earlier about the perceived lack of allyship when the uptick in uh, violence against Asians and the xenophobia first started happening. And it was really painful. And I think it's part of that greater conversation. You know, I think there was a sentiment from other communities of, well, where have you guys been for us? And I think in this conversation, it's been really painful to look at how communities of color have been pitted against each other in ways that we don't even realize. And I think part of my deep dive and reflecting over the past few months has been around this whole idea of the model minority myth. It came from the time that we're examining in Warrior. Like I have books in that drawer that show excerpts from, you know, Chinatown newspapers where they're just like, everybody just make friends with the white people. We have to assimilate, cut your cues off. Just, you know, I think it was about, let's put our heads down, let's not be a threat. And if we work hard enough, maybe we'll just not be attacked anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think when that was so successful, I think people in power, and these are themes we examine in Warrior, mm -hmm. and started to use that success against other communities of color. I think that's created this, I don't know what to call it, like a, a dynamic that also needs to be dismantled. I think Asians right now, I think we do have to talk about anti-Blackness within our communities. And I mm -hmm. think we do need to understand where that model minority myth comes from. And I think we do need to figure out ways to heal instead of still being part of this system that pits us against each other. Like, well, look at the Asians. They're doing great. So you just must be lazy. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. That's a great example of how, you know, something, you know, so long ago really affects us still today. And it, it's called systemic racism uh, for a reason, right? It's just systemic and it's pervasive. And 
I honestly um, feel like it could take generations to peel away those scars. However, I think we are, you know, we are on the right track because I don't know about you, but I feel like maybe it's just like the people I hang out with, but you know, there's those that aren't speaking up or speaking out against racism and specifically anti-black racism are basically not really in my friend's circle anymore. You know, it's really, it's a time to examine also, you know, where, where maybe our preconceptions, um, you know, come from. And I have, surprisingly, I've had like some really interesting conversations with my dad. Like every time I see him, I see him pretty often. He's like, oh, I read this article recently, or I read this cool tea article recently, or, you know, I, I thought about that time that I said this like, like 20, 30 years ago, and I realized that was racist. That was not cool. That's amazing. Um, yeah. It's I mean, like that your dad is doing that kind <laughs> of deep dive, like, especially, you know, when I think of the older generation, I mean, mm -hmm. I've tried to raise conversations with within my family and I would put my success maybe at a five out of ten you know you, you know what I mean and, and yeah. maybe that is 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 on me and being able to um you know articulate uh certain things um you know in, in in a way that really connects so like good on your dad like props props to your dad and, and I mean props to you because he's obviously reading your work <laughs> wanting to you know yeah he's he has to be a fan he's got no choice so um <laughs> for him like you know just kind of stating his privilege like he was born in vancouver he's fluent in english you know so he never really had that language barrier he, he can also speak cantonese and so i think like you know language is a huge barrier to you know comprehension of challenging but important topics sometimes too and so that's why for example you've got a lot of you know community organizers um you know cool d collective included you know creating resources on how to talk to your your family members or older generations about Black Lives Matter and why it should matter to them or, or us overall as well. So certainly I'm still, I'm still hopeful, but you know, to your point, like it's not going to be just one conversation and then it's like, oh, I tried and then I'm going to give up. It's going to be a constant thing that, that has to come up and hopefully it's a safe space for people to kind of, you know, share and learn and dissect and reflect. One more question on that topic then. How do you see the Black and Asian uh, community coming together through entertainment and media to be able to, to support one another? I'm not entirely sure what the answer is. Um, not yet, anyway. I think it's something that, I hope it's something that many more people outside of just my immediate friend circle of API creatives in Hollywood and beyond are asking. I don't know what that answer is. I mean, I remember watching a documentary years ago when Justin Lin actually came to Vancouver here. And it was a documentary that actually showed how Black artists have really opened doors for Asian artists. You know, Better Luck Tomorrow would not have been finished by Justin if not for MC Hammer who came in, swoop, yeah, he came in, swooped I in. had no idea. Yeah, Justin was like a student PA on one of his music videos and MC Hammer <laughs> gave him his phone number. And years later, Justin was trying to make better luck tomorrow. He was applying for all these credit cards and just ran out of credit cards and was so desperate that the story goes, he called MC Hammer, not even sure if this was his number anymore. Yeah. And after this conversation where I'm guessing it sort of went like, hi, my name is Justin. We met on... Your music video shoot a few years ago. <laughs> and by yeah. the conversation, MC Hammer said, how much money do you need? Justin told him, and apparently he wired him the money that night. Oh my gosh. Which is why wow. you see 
and featuring MC Hammer in his movie after that, his next independent mm. movie after that, you know? Um, so I, I say that because for me as an Asian artist, I know that we would not have these opportunities if we were not standing on the shoulders of black artists who have busted the gates open and made it easier for other marginalized communities to also say, okay, is it our turn? Or we want our mm-hmm. turn, to, however you want to say that. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think a lot of people are excited about Shang-Chi, you know, the first Asian mm-hmm. hero. And Simu Liu tweeted something that I thought was very precise tribute, which was there would be no Shang-Chi if not for Black Panther. 100%. You know? 100%. Yeah. In the same way that the Immigration Act of 1965 opened the doors for Asians and other communities. And, and, and that's a thing. That's, that's what I think is so important in this, that we can't lose sight of how we may have unknowingly, you know, through no fault of our, ho- our own, because is it in our history? Is it in our school systems teaching us? And, and, and that erasure of history and alliances I think it does affect our understanding, not just of the past, but of the present situation now. And, you know, there were, there, there are instances that just aren't talked about where the Asian community did support the Black Civil Rights Movement. And we just don't hear those stories. And we as the Asian community don't hold those heroes up, mm-hmm. you know? Like Malcolm X's right-hand woman was a Japanese-American woman. And... I have tried to read her name so many times and I, I, Yuri, you know, so this is an example of, you know, could do better to like, yeah. you know, so mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that answer is yet. But you're working your way at it. Um, I'm so open. Trying to, I'm, I'm yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm working with um, the Inspire Justice team and one of the things they do is they specifically work with artists and activists, mm-hmm. sorry, artists and influencers who, to bridge the gap into activism mm. and help them amplify whatever your message or cause is, help you navigate, you know, especially nowadays in cancel culture, you, it's, it's, it's really a tough thing to like, I have every good intention and I'm going to use this term. And then everyone's like, that's not okay. And yeah, you know, in your career and you're like doing the apology tour, like no one wants that. Yeah. They provide a really important service and through it, you know, I've, I've been teamed with, some incredible black women who I, I, I tell them some things I observe and they're able to relate through their lens of being black women. So ask me in a year and I might have a different answer. Well, I will definitely um, hold you to that. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I really appreciate that where this conversation has gone. And once again, I'm just so excited for people to see Warrior. Um, I have a bit of a funny question for you from yeah, none other than our friend, Chen Tang, who is ah, new to Warrior Season 2. He's um, fantastic in Season 2. Yeah. Oh, he absolutely is. A, a breath of fresh air. Um, so yeah. Yeah. People, I, I'm so excited for people to see him. And, and also how, how you've reprised your role and, uh, you know, just grown, just grown your character so much. Um, his question is, who do you think is the best fighter on the show? Oh, I have, I have my pick, but... Of course you would ask that. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay, let's do a rundown here. We've got Andrew Koji, who... Like the um, Bruce Lee incarnate? <laughs> what, what's that? He's like the Bruce Lee incarnate. Like, it's... You know, it's so funny because think of that pressure, right? To step into the role that Bruce Lee wrote for himself. 
the, the EPs were always really clear. You don't want someone to step in and do a Bruce Lee imitation. Mm-mm, mm-mm. It's, it's been done, has not worked. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and you know, you're, you're really just trying to ground something. And I think what they saw in Koji is not just like phenomenal raw talent. He's just got that like, it's just the, the, the combination of showmanship that he has a fighter and just like the raw emotion that those are things that work for him as a fighter. Then you've got someone mm-hmm. like Joe Taslam, you know, from the raid. Yeah. He's like a national judo champion. So he truly is like a legit martial artist. Then you've got Jason Tobin who, you know, his character is just like <laughs> raw hedonistic. <laughs> I just love to like, you know, like, like, like stab and slash and stab and slash. Yeah. And you've got Chen's character who, you know what I'm going to say? It's a toy. That's, that's you know what? I'm so, so glad you chose that. I'm going to answer this question. You know? <laughs> Chen set me up. Yeah. And I'm, I realized I discounted myself from one of the candidates. Mm-hmm. So um, whether or not you guys agree, I'm going to say a toy. And that's your story and you're sticking to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was, that was, that was going to be, exactly. be my pick as well, to be honest yeah. with you. Cause, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean like, sure. Like, you know, you see, uh, you know, these strong, you know, swift dudes, you know, fighting and stuff. Everyone's got their own style, which is really cool. But, um, I was really inspired by your fight scenes. Not that I would ever want to put myself in any of those situations, but, uh, really inspired by them for sure. <laughs> Thank you. you. You, and you have a bit of a martial arts background, do you? I absolutely do not. Oh my God. Okay. Well, you could have fooled me. Martial arts, like, you know, um, I have a, I have a background as a gymnast. Um, okay. I wanted to do martial arts. Like I was exposed in the sense that my grandpa would do Tai Chi with us over the summer, like poor man. Like now I appreciate him on an even deeper level because he basically had summer camp planned for us because he yeah. took all of us like full time. Mm-hmm. Um, me and my cousin. So he had like four kids on his watch. So we had a combination of Chinese calligraphy, meditation for like a freaking hour that's a lot for a kid and then yeah you like you know some some tai chi moves um and then because of the mandarin um bilingual program sometimes we would get exposed to um some wushu or more commonly known as like kung fu you know i was already training 20 hours a week as a competitive gymnast so to add martial arts just would have been too much Mm -hmm. i did not really get some serious exposure to martial arts until I was cast in Marco Polo. And I didn't even have exercise clothes. I think I went to Walmart and bought like <laughs> exercise clothes that immediately shrunk in the wash and like didn't even fit me well. And, oh, no. and, and, you know, we were all so out of shape. We were all like, we were all like, like not ready for this martial arts show that wanted us to do <laughs> martial arts. And we just jumped yeah. right into choreo pretty much. They didn't have time to really teach me, um, a foundation, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's where my, mar- yeah, I have no problem saying like, I'm not, I'm not a legit, you know, like I'm not a legit lifelong martial artist. I have so much respect for it. I, I, mm-hmm. I always want to be better at it. And, uh, and I have an amazing stunt double who trains me and, and, and luckily, you know, had more time to give me some foundation um, for warrior that she didn't have time to do when she was working with me on Marco Polo. Oh, okay. It was, oh, it's cool. You got to work with the same person. She's awesome. Yeah, she's, um, her name is Tong Yao from China, and she's, she's so dope. Amazing. Well, shout out to Tong Yao. 
Yeah. That's awesome. It's yeah. I mean, like, gosh, like Olivia, what I love about your story too, is that, um, you just have like a really like diverse background. So, you know, like your, your background as a gymnast, as a broadcast journalist, um, and also like, you know, just being like Canadian too, that's like pretty freaking cool. What are some, I guess, from some of your, your previous lives that you've lived, what are some, I guess, kind of skills or kind of mindsets you've been able to kind of translate into acting? Hmm. That's a really, I think the broadcast journalism and the writing, um, cause I was a youth culture and features writer for, um, a, a national publication of newspapers here in Canada. And that, that experience in media exposed me to a lot of people. And usually mm-hmm. when I was meeting people, it's, it's, it's oftentimes the worst day of their lives. You know, I, I hated that aspect about my job. You know, if I'm having to knock on the door to ask for the picture of a loved one that you just lost, mm. it's not a great part of the job. But what it gave me was such a window into the human psyche and how people reacted under extreme stress, including myself, because sometimes that job put me into situations that while everybody's running away, I'm running in, you know, and I think there's more understanding now of mental wellness that journalists need because sometimes we're in there with the frontline response teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then there, there wasn't, wasn't so much, I, I guess. And that gave me a real window into grief and shock and actually mm-hmm. how, you know, you think people are going to be sobbing, but there's always this, there's no normal. There's no normal when it comes to mm-hmm. normal when it comes to shock. And so I think I understood that actually sometimes underplaying something, because I think everyone has an idea of like, you know, sobbing hard. Mm-hmm. That's not really what I would see in, in, in life. You know, people mm-hmm. have really strange reactions sometimes. Right. Um, and I think it sort of created a base as a storyteller because when you understand that, especially in news, every day you're writing a script, sometimes five, and every day you're, you're, you're learning to write to what visuals you have to tell a story, and that transfers over here. Oh, yeah. No, I, I can definitely see that, um, especially just, you know, the, the human condition, and I imagine you're, you're, you're quite the, the writer, um, and I know that you've been doing some writing and directing of your own projects as well. Is that right? Well, yes, I have, Natasha. Oh. Oh, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) I think most people right now know me as an actor. And I think of myself more as, that sounded pompous, I think of myself more as, but I've just always known that I'm a storyteller. And I think acting is one vehicle for it. It is by far my passion. I also just love facilitating a good story. And I always wanted to, I don't know, like create something from the ground up. So I entered this short film contest for the second year in a row last year. I did not win for a second year in a row. And I thought, Uh, you know what? This is like really my only goal of 2019. I told myself, I have to get a short film done. I have to figure out how to do this, especially because they were allowing me to shadow the directors on Warrior. And one of my EPs, who was so kind, like, let me come in on his prep meetings. This is um, Lonnie Perster and texted me after Warrior Season 2 and was like, can't wait to see your short. And I was the like, oh, no. he's holding me accountable. He's holding me accountable. Awesome. How dare he? 
you know? <laughs> How dare he believe in me? Um, but oh, I was like, I can't, I can't show up to a third season and, and just, you know, like, I, I want to be the person who walks the talk and delivers. So, yeah, I cast Diane Doan. <laughs> my uh, lovely. Um, mm-hmm. And I tried to actually cast Rich Ting, too, my other warrior castmate. Mm-hmm, um, from season one. From season one, Bolo. Mm-hmm. Um, but that talented motherfucker, he booked a movie in New York and, like, how dare he shows at the same time. And I, and I knew that I knew, I knew I was taking a risk, but you know, I just thought he would have been so perfect. He's such a great actor. Mm-hmm. You know? And he, he, uh, yeah. And, 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 and in the end it, it um, completely worked out. I got a fantastic um, actor, uh, Patrick Sabongi to, to, to step in and, you know, he oh my gosh. It. Yeah. So three days before we went to camera, I lost Rich. Um, oh gosh yeah but it was it was a calculated risk i knew he was working like gangbusters in new york and you know you can't you can't fault a friend for getting work i would have been like i'll pay for your ticket no yeah exactly i I found you an airbnb (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like what can you say well i'm so i'm so glad to hear that that worked out and um you know, it's, it's one of those things, like, it, it sounds like what I'm getting from you is, like, you truly are a creative, like, through and through, um, whether that be through, you know, earlier on in your life, you know, creating beautiful movement and strong movement through as a gymnast, um, and then, you know, telling stories as a broadcast journalist, as an actor, writer, director, and I honestly can't wait to see what's next for you. That's, that's mostly it. I have a couple, like, a couple of wrap-up questions. But before I kind of move on, um, would love to know, is there anything else that we didn't get to, get to touch upon today that you wanted to talk about? I just want to make sure that people know that Warrior is incredibly funny and entertaining. So, yes, we do not shy away from xenophobia and showing the abuses of power that, that happened at the high levels um, in terms of pitting communities against each other. I just also really think that, especially if you're feeling down right now about anti-Asian sentiment that's happening in our world, this is the show to watch because we are the heroes of a time that, although set a hundred plus years ago, is awfully resonant and mirroring of, of 2020. So I just, I don't want people to shy away from watching our show because I think, I think it'll actually leave you feeling like, yeah, (laughs) you know? Oh, I definitely felt that way. Absolutely felt that way. And I'm so happy that we were able to chat with you as well as Chen. And we're wishing you guys the best of luck with season two. Before I let you go, um, our podcast is called the Pearls of Wisdom podcast. So I want to ask you, do you have any pearls of wisdom or life advice that you want to share with our audience? Oh, oh, that, that, hmm. Let me think for a second. That's a deep question. Uh, <laughs> or it could be wisdom. an easy question. <laughs> I feel, did Chen, did, did Chen say something like, don't forget to wear socks with shoes? Like, did he say something like super simple like that? He, he did not actually and pearl pearl of wisdom no uh, no no i shouldn't i shouldn't ask what it is. Um, <laughs> you have your own pearl i know of i know okay look that, that, i can't this is not my quote i don't know who said this but just because of what i just did there a pearl of wisdom that i can pass on that is not mine to own but that popped into my head because i struggle with this is comparison is a thief of joy 
Mm, that, that is, mm-hmm. yeah, that is, that is something that I think so many people struggle with, especially, you know, especially cause you said earlier, this is, this is for a millennial audience and, you know, we are growing up in a time of internet, social media, likes, hearts, you know, followers, shares, like all this stuff that can really create a lot of anxiety, you know, and really make you think that someone else's life is so much better when you never actually know. You never really know what the highlight reel is and how reflective of the other 95% of their life is. And I, 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 I've been thinking a lot about that. Mm-hmm. And is that something that you feel like you kind of move away from or grow out of, you know, as you get older, or is it just something you think that, you know, will might constantly be a challenge for, for people? I think it's constantly a challenge. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. in 20 years, I think I'll be able to tell you if I've grown <laughs> out of it, but I certainly struggle with it. When Marco Polo came out, I, I jumped off social media completely um, because I was so... I, I, honestly, I was just so scared. I was so scared of, if you asked me that one, if you told me one day that I'd be naked on Netflix in how many countries to how many millions of subscribers, I would have get out of here, you know? When you put it that way, gosh. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like yeah. If, if you're watching or listening, like imagine how self-conscious you are in a bikini on the beach. Now put three cameras, imagine yourself with three cameras on you and take that bikini off and fight. I feel like it's like my addiction to sugar. I know it's something I got to manage for the rest of my life as I take a sip of bubble tea. Yeah. (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) there's your pearl of wisdom. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Olivia. And be sure to check out season two of Warrior coming out on Cinemax starting October 2nd. For the Pearls of Wisdom podcast, I'm Natasha Jung.